This is part three of the Redeemer Mission series. We are called to be a community. It was Diedrich Bonhoeffer who wrote quite a bit about fellowship between believers. And he said this quite profoundly. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means first that a Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. It means second that a Christian comes to others through Jesus Christ. It means third that in Jesus Christ we have been chosen from eternity accepted in time, and united for eternity. When God revealed his plan of redemption in Scripture, it should not surprise us when he spoke to Abraham, he spoke in terms of saving a people for himself. Yes, each of us is concerned about our own salvation. We know we're sinners, and we need salvation from God's justice. And so we turn to Christ, and we recognize the individual application of our salvation. But from God's perspective, his viewpoint, his work of redemption is to save a people for himself. Jesus is about saving a people for himself. We are the people of God, the household of faith, as scripture calls us. We are the assembly of the saints. By Christ's blood, we are the assembly of the upright, as it says elsewhere in scripture. The body of Christ, the branch, the bride of Christ, God's building, God's flock using family terms, the household of God, the family of God, a spiritual house, the household of faith. We're called to worship, and we are called to study his word. And we do this in the context of the community that God has called us to be part of, the community of faith, or the church. Our confession does a great job summarizing what is called the communion of the saints, In chapter 26, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his grace, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. That's our union with Christ. But then the statement goes further. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conclude to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man, spiritually and physically, together as a community, called by Christ, saved by Christ, united by Christ. Scripture has much to say about our being a community. I want to lay out four biblical principles that are there on your outline. First, we are joined by a unique spiritual unity as Christians. Second, we are joined to grow in God's grace together. Third, we are joined to support one another, inwardly and outwardly. And finally, we are joined to spur one another on. First, we are joined by a unique spiritual unity. Look at the passage that is there labeled, or under that label, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 through 14. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The same Holy Spirit unites us into one body, so that we are one body. Using that metaphor, body, is so vivid for us. And Paul is careful, by the way, in this Corinthians passage to disrupt the usual social distinctions that the Corinthians would have known of. There were Jews and there were Greeks, very separate. 
and there were slaves and they were free. Very separate. These are distinctions. And he's blurring all of those now, saying we are one in the Spirit of God. Verse 13 again. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the same Holy Spirit unites us all. This is the Holy Spirit of God. God, the third person. By the, by the way, this is true not just for our church family, but this is true with any other Christians, whether they're in different denominations or different countries, different places. If we are in Christ, we are united by the same spirit, and we are family in that sense. Christians are joined by a unique spiritual unity, unlike any other so-called unity there may be. There's a second passage I want you to see for this point. Look at Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. But first, 18. For through him, Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we come to the Father through Christ. And he is the one who unites us. Jesus and his work for us, done for us. If he's done that work for you, and you know because you have faith in him, then you can be sure that you stand unified before the Father together with other believers. The finished work of Christ provides the gift of his righteousness for us as believers, and we stand before God clothed in his righteousness. Verse 18 again. For through him, Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The agency of the Holy Spirit here again comes out in this passage as we see very clearly this unique spiritual union we have as believers. A joint relationship to the Father. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He used body, Paul did, in the passage I referred to earlier from Corinthians. Now the household of God is the metaphor. We are citizens with others across the generations even. We are joint family members with the myriads of believers who have gone before us and the ones who are now together as a church family. It's a solid spiritual unity that we have. Verse 20 of this Ephesians passage, chapter 2. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now another metaphor, a building. A church building or a temple building. We are united together to form a structure. The foundation is the word of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus. And in antiquity, before all these AutoCAD programs, the cornerstone set everything else straight. If the cornerstone was solid, the rest of the construction could go up uh, strong and firm. Jesus is the cornerstone, and we are pieces that are put into the building together making this structure. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are joined by a unique spiritual unity as a community of faith. I became a believer as a preteen. Now, for several years after that, I couldn't go to a church that preached the Bible clearly. I had a very spotted uh, time of fellowship with other believers. I felt pretty alone most of the time. 
When I was 16, I started to drive myself to a solid church where I met many immature believers and started to experience this unique fellowship with other believers that was unlike anything else I had experienced with other people in other relationships or other associations. I knew the relationship I had with these people, although I hadn't known them very long, was much deeper than the usual relationships around me. I really sensed the way this spiritual unity works for Christians when I was at a, a campground where I worked. And there are people that came from all over the country to camp there. And I saw another teenager, I was 16 or 17, who had a t-shirt of one of the Christian bands I liked. And when I saw the band, I was so excited that someone else knew of this band. I went up and said, hey, have you seen them? And where did you see them? And after we got talking a little while, I just kind of blurted out, are you a Christian? And he said he was. And even though I just met him and I was a teenager, and teenagers generally standoffish at first, I felt like I immediately knew this guy for the longest time. We talked for a good hour just about the bands we liked and our walk of faith, where we went to church, where we were in our growth in Christ. There is a unique spiritual unity that Christians have because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling and because of what Christ has unified us around, him and his finished work. We are joined by a unique spiritual unity that comes from our joint relationship with Christ. Secondly, I want you to see, though, we are also joined to do something, and that's to grow in his grace. We're not joined just to kind of loiter together or just, you know, like people find each other on a cruise and say, hey, we're going to be here for two weeks. Let's get to know each other. That's not what we're talking about here. We are joined to grow in God's grace, to endeavor towards something. Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to a beloved congregation. He spent two plus years ministering there. Look at Ephesians three fourteen and following. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this is not a passage to be applied only individually. In fact, the plural is used here addressing the people of the Ephesian church. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So there's a desire on the part of the apostle to see the community of believers there grow in God's grace. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's talking to the members of the church that they may grow in grace with each other. Again, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, plural, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to do what? What are we rooted and grounded in love for? To have strength for something, verse 18. May have strength to do what? Comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see here that the desire of the apostle for the people of God is that we would grow in our knowledge of all that is entailed in the grace shown to us by God. Not one person can comprehend it all. We need others, the help of others to begin to grasp what this great grace we've been shown is concerning. That's what his prayer is for us, for the people of God, that we'd have strength to bear all that the grace of God says to us. It's impossible to take in in one person. We need everyone to look to the next person and say, are you seeing what I'm seeing? The grace of God is so great that you cannot comprehend it on your own. That's the implication. God puts us together in community 
to dwell on the grace of God, to contemplate the grace of God shown to us in Christ. The fact that he would give us his favor, even though we deserve his wrath. And he does so because of the work of Christ. That should blow your mind every time you hear it. That should consume so much of your thinking to try to grasp somehow how great this is, the breadth of it, the length of it, the height of it, the depth of it. You wouldn't believe it unless you saw it yourself. Can you believe what we just saw? Have you ever said that to anybody? In the spring of 2000, Sherry and I took a trip to Arizona. We were scouting a mission trip to Tucson that we were going to be leading that summer. We made a side trip. Well, we flew into Phoenix and then made a side trip before going down to Tucson because neither Sherry, or I think Sherry may have seen the Grand Canyon, but she hadn't remembered for sure she was young if she did. I had not seen it. Now, I'd grown up near Niagara Falls. I saw the falls probably 10 times every year, every year that I grew up, and then more after that when I took friends home from college and wanted to show people. And it's an amazing sight. It's a breathtaking sight. But I maybe was a little numb to natural wonders. But I had heard about the Grand Canyon and wanted to see it. So Sherry and I drove up. AJ was only a year old, so we had him on a backpack. And I remember walking up to the edge of the canyon. And as I got to the edge of the canyon, I was taken back. So was Sherry. The size of it, how vast it was, how marvelous it was. It's called grand for a reason. It is an, it's, it's a magnificent sight. It truly is. The colors, the, the size, the depth of it, uh, the beauty of the sky, the wildlife that you could see around there. It's just so big and it makes you feel so small. And I remember just seeing it for a second and being quiet, which I'm not usually, and I turned to Sherry. I said, are you seeing this? Can you believe what you're seeing? And having her to share that experience with and both agree that what we're seeing is amazing. This is beyond words that we could come up with. It was helpful. It was even deeper because both of us saw it. And then when we walked away from it, we would talk from time to time. Do you remember the Grand Canyon? That was incredible. Do you remember what it looked like? And we would talk about it and we would... It was almost like we'd be back at the place together. And it was so good to have the experience together to see this. Later that summer, when we took the mission team, we decided to take a detour. We'd taken buses all the way, or vans, all the way from Redeemer to Tucson. Two-day drive. We stopped at the Grand Canyon, and we blindfolded those who had not seen it before and walked them to the edge of it and then took the blindfold off. And they had the same experience or same reaction that Sherry and I had. And now 15 of us were taking it in. And we're looking at each other like, can you believe this? Have you seen anything like this before? No, I haven't. This is exactly what we're called to be doing in the church with regard to the grace of God shown to us in Christ, that you would be rooted and grounded in love that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, that we would look at each other every Lord's Day that we're together, and it makes us long for those days, and say, can you believe what God has done for us in Christ? I can't imagine that God, the God of the universe would do this, but your neighbor will say, he has done this. His word says it, he's evidenced it, and together that God would give us strength to fully comprehend the grace that's shown to us that we would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We are joined together to grow in God's grace. When we comprehend what God has done for us in Christ, our works become nothing. When we comprehend what God has completed for us in Christ, any self-righteousness 
or any self-righteous notions are squashed. When we comprehend what God has saved us from and saved us to, we are liberated by his grace. When we begin to comprehend with all the saints together, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ for us, we are transformed. We are joined together to grow in God's grace. But we are also, thirdly, joined to support one another. There's an action that takes place between us in community. Galatians 6 is where I will go for this, and you will see it on the outline. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are called to support one another in our walk with Christ. This is especially poignant when we fall into sin, and everybody does at some point. All of us struggle with sin, and we need each other for checks, for accountability, for loving correction. That's what the first verse really refers to. If anyone's caught in transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Do so humbly, because everyone can fall. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. This is that mutual accountability we have in the body of Christ. And yes, this verse speaks to something leaders in particular should be about. But make no mistake, in the community, we have to be checking one another with love, in, in, in humility. But there's something else, verse 2, that covers a, a much wider swath. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burden. Someone's carrying a weight, take some of the weight off of them and put it on yourself. Or help them bear it. And you can bear it with them together. We can bear it together in a way that cannot be handled just as one person or one family. This is about the community rallying around each other. Taking the weight off of one. Notice the assumption of the verse. Bear one another's burdens. It doesn't say, if you have some burdens, help bear them. Bear one another's burdens. You will have burdens in this life. They're part of this life we're living. We need each other to bear those burdens. That's one of the great strengths of this community we have. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, it's true that Scripture says that we should cast our cares, all our cares, upon God. In 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But one of the main ways that God manifests his care for us or his ability to take those cares is by sending us people, by placing us in community so that we can sense the presence of God. That's one of the main remedies that God has for us when we pray to him is to bring us people to help us. John Stott said very wisely, human friendship in which we bear one another's burdens, is part of the purpose of God for his people. So we should not keep our burdens to ourselves, but rather seek a Christian friend who will help bear them with us. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are joined to support one another. What does it mean to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens? Well, the law of Christ is given by Jesus himself, and it's really a capturing of over half of the commandments, right? In John 13, he says, Jesus says, 
a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The sacrificial love that Jesus gives with no expectation of something in return. Verse 35 of John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the law of Christ. That's the commandment of Christ, to love one another. Bearing one another's burdens is a tangible way to love each other by our actions. How far might we go with this burden bearing? Later in John 15, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus gives us his law, which is love for one another, a sacrificial love for one another. This happens in the body of believers in so many ways. We can think of it as in inwardly and outwardly, as our confession says. Outwardly, I've seen it over and over and over again. But the first time I saw it here at this church was the first summer that I arrived here, 1997. Um, Sherry and I had not been uh, a, a part of a singular congregation for very long. We hadn't been married that long. And so this was a very new church. And I remember uh, being here on a morning service. We had two services because we were meeting in the south building that was very small. We'd have like 30 people come to the first service and maybe 50 to the second. And so maybe 80 people total, and that's including children. And there was a family who had fallen into some hard times, and they could not pay for their mortgage. It had already gone two months late, and they were looking to the next one. And it was just difficult for them to speak up about it, but the deacons became aware of this. And this is before the deacons fund. And so I remember one morning, maybe the third Sunday that we were here in June of 1997, one of the deacons got up, I think it was one of the deacons got up and said to everybody that there was a family who had need and that we wanted to take a special offering that week. Now again, there's only 80 people. I don't know how many actual families were there. And that morning, people put cash and checks in of over $2,000 in addition to their normal offerings to help this family out and pay their back payments and even get them ahead for the next month. And I thought to my, it was amazing to me, and we have a deacon's fund now that's pretty robust, and the deacons are doing that kind of a thing all the time on your behalf as a congregation. But seeing that for the first time, how immediately people responded, especially in a phase in our life where we had no money hardly at all, that they just gave so freely to then help this family out when they had this burden. Because the family was burdened by this and unable to maybe even think spiritually because of the weight upon them and the church community help lift it off them. Now that's something we can speak of in outward terms of burden bearing. But what about inward terms? In 2018 to 2019, we had 13 funerals. Not all were direct members of our church, but loved ones related to our church members. Uh, Nathan and I were a part of all of those in some fashion. And there is a burden that comes upon us. Even when we know as a believer, a believer went to be with the Lord and we're grateful for that and know where they are, we are grieved because they're no longer with us and we're, we're lacking because their presence is gone. And there's a great burden for the family and a great burden for the community. We don't stay alone in those times. We come together to bear witness to the resurrection of Christ, to remind each other of the grace of God once again that helps us bear the burden of this loss that we are really feeling right now for this life we live. That's a spiritual burden bearing. That's something that we do in a unique way as a community of believers. That's also what it means to bear one another's burdens when we come together in such a fashion. In our confession, it says in the same chapter that I read from earlier, 
Saints, by profession, are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in the performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offers opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus." When we hear from a, a call from a, a far-off place from Christians who need our prayer, need our support, we readily, immediately respond to that by giving and praying for those who are also called by the name of Christ in other places to bear their burdens as well, even if miles separate us. We are joined to support one another. Finally, we are joined to spur one another on, to spur one another on. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, a passage that is common. We've heard it many times before. Now think of it in terms of our community together, and especially because we can't be together this morning. This should be all the more precious to us. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 24 of that 10th chapter, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here the writer of Hebrews illustrates one of the reasons we meet together, to stir one another up, as it says. The implication, again, is that we need stirring from time to time. Um, Think of that can of paint that's on your shelf right now. I have a deck that I started to paint in the fall, but then the weather got too cold and I couldn't finish it. So I put the bucket of paint on the shelf. It's brand new, pretty much. I just bought it and then started painting and now put it up on the shelf. But I know when I pull it down, once it starts consistently being 60 degrees plus, I'm going to pull that lid off and it's going to need to be stirred. It'll be kind of sitting there and settle. There'll be a little film of it on the top. It's just got to be stirred up so it can be effective. It has to be moved. It can't just be taken off, sitting for so long, and used right away. It won't, the consistency won't be right and it won't protect the deck like it's supposed to. We, too, can sit for a while and need stirring. And so when we come together as a community, it has the impact of stirring us up, spurring us on. Stirring and spurring, meaning the same thing. To do what? Verse 24 of Hebrews 10. How to stir up one another to love and good works. Back to the law of Christ again. Um, We're stirred up together. We're spurred on to love one another and to perform good works in our midst when we come together. This is why we need to be together. We are joined for this purpose, to stir each other up. We can become complacent on our own, but when we have other believers with us, we're able to stir one another, spur one another on to do what God has called us to do. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We ought not to neglect this great opportunity we have for spurring each other on. We need this in our lives. The writers of the New Testament are always ready for the return of Christ. And we see that in verse 25 of Hebrews 10. We also should be ready for the return of Christ, looking forward to the return of Christ. And here's the thing. Either we're going to see him soon by death or he'll come again. It will be soon. And we look forward to that immediate day. It's coming quickly for us. And we look forward to being with Christ. And verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. We want to be stirring each other up. We want to be careful about this. We want to be urgent about this. Why? Encouraging one another. Because we should do it all the more knowing Christ is coming. 
and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our time on earth is limited, so let's make the most of it. Let's not sit on the shelf like a bucket of old paint. Let's be stirred up. And the way you're going to be stirred up is not stirring yourself up. It's by other believers in community together. We are joined to spur one another on, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, one of my hopes for the outcome of this epic we're in right now for the few weeks it may be, however it may look for six to eight weeks as the experts may say, or maybe longer, my hope for the outcome is that it will churn up in all of us a greater appetite to be in worship with other believers, to not take for granted what we have in this country and in this place, to normally have such free access to go to the house of God, to be with the people of God, and receive all the benefits that are mentioned about community that I've just said, but especially to be spurred on. I know I've taken for granted how blessed we are to come and meet personally so regularly. We need each other's encouragement. We need the spurring of one another. You know, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, ekklesia, ek out and klesia from kaleo to call, the called out ones. We are the called out ones according to the word used by God in the New Testament. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, when people went back and translated into Greek so the Greek reader could, could understand it, sometimes they would use Israel and they would translate it ekklesia the same way. And so the New Testament writers also use this word, ecclesia, to call the people of God the called out ones. That's who we are. We're the called out ones. In Exodus 19, Moses is looking ahead to the fulfillment of what God will make of his people. The problem is Israel kept failing. Listen to what Moses says to Israel. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. We know right there they didn't do that. But he says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You be the called out ones. Here's the problem. They had a condition. They had to keep his covenant. And the problem is Israel failed at this. So they did not become, in this full sense, the kingdom of priests and the holy nation that God called them to be. However, there was one Israelite who did fulfill this covenant. There was one, Jesus, who completely met all the requirements of God. And in him, all the promises that were made to Israel are found. So the promise to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, are found in the person of Christ, so that anyone who is in Christ, we are that kingdom of priests and holy nation. How do we know this? After Jesus finishes his work on the cross and ascends into heaven, the Apostle Peter writes to Christians who by faith rest in Jesus, now are partakers of Christ in all that he has purchased. In his First Peter 2, 9 and 10, remember the language from Exodus now. But you are a chosen race. He's talking to the church, the called out ones. He's talking to us. But you are a chosen race, present tense, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see it in Christ? The fulfillment of Exodus is found, and we are now those people, the called out ones, the holy priesthood of God, because of what Christ has done. Again, Bonhoeffer. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? 
It means, first, that a Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. It means, second, that a Christian comes to others through Jesus Christ. It means, third, that in Jesus Christ we have been chosen from eternity, accepted in time, and united for eternity. Brothers and sisters, we are joined by a unique spiritual unity. We are joined to grow in God's grace. We are joined to support one another, and we are joined to spur one another on. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are very thankful for the special status that you have given to your church through the work of Christ. We are the called out ones. We are your body. We are your household. We are the community of faith. Lord, please knit us closely together, even when we have to be apart in times like this. Make us all the more anxious for your coming together again. Please build up our community's love for each other. Please keep us close and united in these unusual times. Please give health and protection to your people and to our larger community. May the love that we have for each other as a church family, as a church community, shine forth to the world around us so that many would be drawn by the one who is the center of our community, the Lord Jesus himself, in whose name I pray. Amen.